This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked me not to read an ad, so that's what I'm not doing. Enjoy the show! Hello to you, and welcome to Blurry Photos. I'm David Flora, and I'll be leading you in singing the verses of this Doombaya until you truly say, Oh Lord, Doombaya. Glad to have you with me, and please, take a gigantic thank you from me. You guys have pushed Blurry Photos over 1,000 ratings on iTunes. Huge thank you, it means so much to me, and I'm honored that you guys took the time to go and rate the show, so thank you really cool. Now the weather isn't getting quite as cool as I'd like yet, but it's getting close, which means it's almost time for Blurry Photober, the best tober there is. It also means the weather's just about right for squeezing in a little more camping, getting outside, breathing in that fresh air, making s'mores, and having the peace scared right out of you with some campfire ghost stories. They're coming in a little late this year, but they're coming in hot! I have five stories and a poem here for you to crank up the volume and play on a mobile speaker or car radio as you fire up some marshmallows and wonder what's making the twigs snap in the woods nearby. We're going to get right into it, so hope you enjoy the seventh edition of Campfire Ghost Stories. See you on the other side. Belly of the beast. One night, a man was driving down a lonely country road when his car broke down. He got out and started walking, hoping that a passing car might stop and pick him up. The rain began and quickly became a downpour. The wind was blowing hard, and it swept the rain into his face. He staggered on through the mud, looking for somewhere he could take shelter. Eventually, he came to an old, crooked house, set back from the road between two small hills. The walls were a pale, sickly gray, and it had a thatched roof. The windows looked like wild, staring eyes, and the front door looked like a grinning mouth. Hello? He yelled. Is there anybody there? The curtains in the window shifted in the breeze, but there was no answer. He banged his fist on the front door, and to his surprise, it creaked open. Cautiously, the man stepped inside and closed the door behind him. His clothes were drenched, and he was soaked to the bone. The interior of the house was dark, and he strained his eyes to see in the dim light. The air seemed heavy, and there was a stench of mold and decay. There was no furniture, just a bare room. The floor was covered by a shabby brown carpet, and some white sticks were strewn around. The walls were strangely curved, like a cave, and they were covered in some kind of green slime. He took a box of matches out of his pocket, struck one, and held it up. When he reached out and touched one wall, it felt cold and clammy, 
and squishy, like raw meat. He backed away, still holding the match, and his foot kicked something on the floor. When he looked down, he saw that it was something round and white. To his horror, he realized it was a human skull, staring at him with two shadowy eyes. On the ground nearby, there was another skull, and over in the corner lay yet one more. What he thought were white sticks strewn around the floor were actually bones. Arm bones, leg bones, and rib bones. What he thought was a carpet was really just shaggy, bristly hair. Just then, the match burned down to his fingertips and he dropped it. The darkness closed in around him again. Shaking with fear, the man lit another match and turned to leave, but he couldn't see the door. He felt along the cold, slimy walls, but he couldn't find it. On the back wall, there was a small hole, and as he watched, it seemed to grow larger. He thought his eyes were playing tricks on him. His mind clung to logic, like a man in a hurricane clings to a tree, desperately trying to stop himself from being blown away. Where am I? He gasped. What's going on? A sour, sickly smell filled the air and he felt water rising around his ankles. When he looked down, he saw it wasn't water, but some type of slimy, sticky liquid with bubbles in it, almost like saliva. He began to panic, sloshing back and forth through the sludge, trying to find a way out. It's as if it's not a house at all, he exclaimed. It's the belly of a beast. All of a sudden, the walls started stretching like elastic, closing in on him. The carpet beneath his feet began to ripple and roll like a giant tongue. It lifted up in the air, tossing him back and forth like a rag doll. It tossed him back towards the hole in the wall, which opened like a huge throat and swallowed him whole. Then he was falling, falling, falling. And the last thought that passed through his mind before he lost consciousness was... A house is eating me alive. Tombstone Terror. Alan and Matt were ghost hunters. They would visit old cemeteries and see if they could stir up a spirit from an old tombstone. They were at just such a cemetery one night, and set up their recorder on a particularly large and ornate headstone and prepared to begin. They were afraid to shine their flashlights on the stone to see the name engraved there, as trespassing in the cemetery at night was illegal. They had crawled over the fence at the rear of the cemetery to avoid the caretaker. Matt flipped the on button on the recorder and said aloud, we would like to speak to whoever lies beneath this stone. In response, all they heard was a scratching noise that seemed to come from behind the tombstone. With a calm voice, Alan said, Please, tell us your name. Again, the only response was a scratching noise. So Matt said, We only wish to speak with you. Please show yourself. Suddenly, both young men felt the air turn cold and a tall, dark shadow rose from behind the tombstone. The shadow moved to engulf them, 
Alan and Matt had many encounters with spirits and were not afraid. Too late, they both realized the apparition meant them harm. The shadow swept down, engulfing them, and pulled them into the ground beneath the tombstone. The next morning, the caretaker of the cemetery found the recorder on the ground by the grave. He turned it on, and after each question, he heard the following response. We would like to speak to whoever lies beneath this stone. Yes, I am here. Please, tell us your name. My name is never spoken by the living. We only wish to speak with you. Please show yourself. If I show myself, it will be the last thing you will ever see. I got you both. The caretaker quietly picked up the recorder. Knowing he had the only evidence that someone had been in the cemetery and by that tombstone, he went to his tool shed and tossed the recorder into a pile with many others. Not in my neighborhood. When I was 18, I started babysitting my aunt's youngest three kids. I always got a very uneasy feeling when I went into her house. The only reason I agreed to stay in her house was because I was just out of high school and I needed the money. You need to know that her house is a bi-level. When entering her house, you have to either go upstairs to the right or downstairs to the left. Almost right away, weird things started to happen. At first, it was small things, like thumping on the walls, things going missing, and so on. But then things started getting more and more scary. One morning, I was in the kitchen fixing their breakfast, while the three kids, ages five to nine, were in the living room watching TV. From where I was standing, I could see all three of them sitting on the couch. The middle girl got up to go to the bathroom. Halfway down the hall, she turned around and ran back to me and started crying. When I asked what was wrong, she said she saw a man walk from her room to her brother's room. My first thought was, oh my god, someone's in the house. I made the three kids go outside while I grabbed a golf club and searched both rooms. No one was there. I asked her to tell me what he looked like. She described in detail the clothes he was wearing. I have to tell you, she is not the kind of kid that makes things up. And just by seeing how scared she was, I knew she was telling the truth. There are so many things that happened, it would take me forever to describe them to you. Several weeks later, all four of us were eating breakfast in the living room when we heard someone. It sounded like a, a girl or a young boy say, help and then the sound of someone falling down the stairs. Now, while everything that happened upstairs was scary, none of it felt like it would be harmful. I cannot say the same thing about the downstairs. I would not even let the kids go down there by themselves. 
I called that area the center point of evil. One day in the spring, we had horrible thunderstorms. The schools had let the kids out early because of the weather. Around 4 o'clock, a tornado watch was issued. As much as I hated the downstairs, we all went down there for our safety. All four of us were huddled in a pile in the far corner of the room. From where we were, we could see down the small hallway into the laundry room. All of a sudden, a black figure in the form of a person started to come out of the laundry room, paused, and then started moving down the hallway. I did the only thing I could think of. I asked my great-grandfather for help. He's always the spirit I turn to for strength. I said, Grandpa, I am so scared. As soon as I said this, the thing disappeared. I have no idea if this was a coincidence or if my grandpa had something to do with it. Shortly after this happened, I quit. I could not take it anymore. My aunt still lives in the house, and I refuse to go farther than her front yard. Out of sight, out of mind. Stephanie sat in her car, letting the power chords and impassioned lyrics on the classic rock station float past her. It was a mini decompression after a hard day at work. The real relaxation would start when the frozen pizza was done and Netflix was on. For now, though, she was perfectly content to check out for a minute, sitting in her driveway, the coolness of the car's air conditioning washing over her, and Boston's more than a feeling on the radio. It was a slight movement in her peripheral, or just her mind coming back into focus, but with a few blinks and a deep sigh, Stephanie turned the engine off, grabbed her purse, and stepped out of the car. She looked over her shoulder in the direction of the possible movement just a moment ago as she closed the car door. Nothing seemed to miss in the yard or the semi-distant tree line. She locked the car and went on in, humming guitar licks to herself. It was several hours later when her eyes slowly opened, heavy with sleep. Are you still watching? greeted her on the TV. The pizza, the Netflix, and more importantly, the wine had been just what she needed, and she got up from her couch to take her dishes to the sink. It was late, and she needed to brush her teeth and go to bed so she could get up and do it all again tomorrow, joy of joys. She walked into the kitchen and put her dishes in the sink, then stopped. A movement, again, in her periphery. She wiped her eyes and furrowed her brow, looking out the window towards where she thought the movement had come from. The light from the kitchen spilled softly across the yard beside her house, but only made it so far before being swallowed by the night near the tree line. Frowning, she turned to leave the room, but there, there it was again. Something flashed, something lighter than the murky palette of the dark trees bordering her property. She looked again. Again. Yellow light on the grass, light which made the darkness beyond even deeper. She had a thought. There was a flashlight in her hallway bureau, a nice one. 
Perhaps it could reach the tree line. She walked into the hallway, rummaged the flashlight out of her bureau drawer, and walked back to the kitchen, fully awake and curious. As she turned the corner to the kitchen, an icy shot of adrenaline cut through her body, and the flashlight fell to the floor with a dull clunk. Her eyes had fixed on the window above the sink, where a gray face stared back. Sound formed a knot in Stephanie's throat, a scream too terrified itself to escape and face whatever stared through the window at her. Her eyes darted around the features of the face, or lack thereof. It was sullen, ashen, like a statue, a porcelain doll, a mask, living yet devoid of life. The mouth was shut, the eyes... there were none. They were more than empty sockets. They were bottomless holes, unending pits of black. Stunned with shock and fear, a cold wave of terror washed over her as she saw eight razor-thin points of black slide between the window and sill and curl upwards. A creak, then a crack cut the air, and her eyes flashed to the lock above the window. It strained bent, and snapped as the window was violently forced open, thrusting upwards so hard it cracked heavily. Stephanie's heart beat quickly and her body trembled as the eight points of darkness moved from the window to the side panes, slowly wrapping around the molding. She realized they were actually fingers, though more than twice the length of hers or anybody's she ever saw. They braced the frame of the window as a lengthy, black foot of sorts rose up and slowly entered, and a long, almost skeletal leg followed. The foot landed gently on the kitchen floor, and the gray face began to move forward as the thing pulled itself inside her home. Stephanie backed against the doorframe she was near, her mind crippled with fear as she looked at the unnerving gray face. By then, it was fully inside the kitchen. It was humanoid, but gaunt and lanky. All the limbs were stretched and longer than any human's, though, and it had to hunch over in the comparatively compact kitchen. It took a step towards her, and one of the horridly gangly arms with the elongated fingers reached for her. She finally shook enough terror to bolt out of the room towards the front door. But before she had taken two steps, she banged her shin into an umbrella stand in the hall and fell sprawling to the floor. She turned over to see dark fingers wrap around the doorframe and the thing with the gray face come into the hall, towering over her with all the presence of a living nightmare. She scrambled backward, crying as her arm brushed a wooden umbrella. No, not a wooden umbrella a baseball bat. She had stuck it in the stand exactly four intruders, though she never imagined anything quite like this. Her hand wrapped around the handle of the bat, her knuckles white with pressure. The thing reached down as she struggled to her knees, and in one great burst of fear, anger, and desperation, Stephanie lurched to her feet and swung the bat directly at its mask-like face. It was a swing that would have sent any baseball sailing over an outfield wall, 
and it connected squarely across the gray facade. Unfortunately for Stephanie, her target was not a baseball. The bat shattered into kindling, and her arms buzzed with numbness. The thing did not move an inch. Its creeping fingers wrapped around her waist and lifted her off the floor. If the blow had hit her instead of that gray face, she wouldn't have been more stunned. It was almost incomprehensible her attack had done nothing, and she stared at the empty eye holes in disbelief, dread, and dismay. She could feel the disgusting, steel-like fingers around her body, and she couldn't move, like being held in a vice. It lifted her to eye-hole level and brought her close to its stony, neutral face. She sobbed as she looked into the nothing where the eyes should have been, and darkness closed in around her. Stephanie woke up slowly. Her eyes blinked open to see the TV. Are you still watching? Was on the screen. She was on her couch. Then she bolted upright as the memories flooded back. Her heart beat quickly as she remembered the thing with the gray face. She looked around her living room. Everything was in order. It was morning. Bad combo of pizza and wine? It was one hell of a dream then. She stood up and walked slowly to the hall. The dream was very realistic, but she had to make sure. She stepped through the doorway into the hall. The floor was littered with umbrellas, splinters, and the broken handle of a baseball bat. Her eyes went wide. She trembled violently and backed against the wall. She looked through the doorway to the kitchen. The window was wide open, cracked and everything. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream at all. And then, beyond the window, beyond the yard, standing in the tree line and easily discernible now in the morning light, the thing with the gray face stared at her. She screamed and ran to the front door. She flung it open and ran out into her driveway. She looked over to the tree line from there, and there it was, still staring at her. She took off for her neighbor's house, which sat about a quarter mile down the road. As she approached the house, she could see the thing standing across the road, watching her, and she wondered how it had gotten so far so fast. Her heart raced as she ran onto her neighbor's driveway, and she almost fell when she saw the thing step out from behind the rear of the house. And then, a terrifying realization. It wasn't the same one that had grabbed her last night. It wasn't the same one that was watching her from across the road. That one was still there. There were more than one of these things. She screamed for her neighbors as she ran up to their door and started pounding on it hysterically. The neighbor opened the door and she grabbed his hand trying to blubber out the words to explain what had happened that his family was in danger, they needed to leave, and then she stopped, as long, dark fingers wrapped around his shoulder. She looked up to see one of the things standing behind him, its empty eye holes looking directly at her. 
She looked at her neighbor in disbelief, wondering why he wasn't trying to get away or scared or anything at all. His face was pure puzzlement and worry, but he made no indication he saw or felt the thing that loomed behind him like a doom shadow. He yelled for his wife to call the police as Stephanie backed down the driveway, incoherent and hysterical. She collapsed, unable to make sense of anything. The police came and tried talking to her. She sobbed and told them everything, how there were those things with gray faces and she didn't understand why they couldn't see them and what was going on. She was eventually committed to a psychiatric hospital. She saw them everywhere. Almost one for every person. They would be standing nearby, in shadows, in tree lines, hallways, and corners. No one would listen to her. She could see them go after people. She could see their terrifying faces. She could see them stalking. She could see malicious intent. But no one would listen. It wasn't long before she decided that maybe if she couldn't see them... They might go away, and she could return to her normal life. Nothing else had worked. Talking, drugs, closing her eyes, nothing. They would still be there after all that. So one day, she picked up an ink pen from a desk in her hospital room. She took it to the bathroom mirror and looked at her reflection. Beyond her, in a corner of the room, one of the things stood, watching her. She lifted the pin to her face and pointed it at her eye. She woke up in a hospital bed the next day. Her head was bandaged from where she had removed her own eyes. It was painful, but at least she wasn't able to see the things anymore. She felt comforted for the first time in months. She fumbled around, found a glass of water, and took a long drink. It was cool and refreshing, almost like she had stumbled onto an oasis in the desert. She breathed deeply and settled back to rest again. It was the best sleep she'd had in what felt like forever. When she awoke again, she got up and slowly made her way to the bathroom. When she came out... She inched slowly over to the window. It was daytime. She could hear a lively world outside, and she felt the sunlight's warmth on her skin. It was like a blanket fresh from the dryer. She smiled, relieved. A small hope kindled inside her as she breathed a deep sigh. And then she felt eight long, steel-like fingers wrap slowly around her shoulders. Rest Haven. Aunt Lacey loved taking her niece, Felicity, on day trips. One of their favorite destinations was the beach. One summer day, the air was particularly refreshing and the water a perfect temperature for wading. 
Aunt Lacey and Felicity became enamored with the little creatures they were finding in the tide pools, and all at once realized that not only was the sun setting, but it looked as if a very bad thunderstorm was coming. They quickly got in the car to head home. The storm was worse than Lacey had thought, and she was afraid to keep driving. She decided to pull off the road until the storm passed, but just as she was about to do so, Felicity declared, Look, there's a place we can stay. Sure enough, Lacey saw a sign on a large house. Rest Haven. Rooms for rent. Day, week, month. Feeling relieved, Lacey pulled in, parked, and they both ran to the porch as quickly as possible. A white-haired woman answered the door before they could even knock. She smiled and said, Come in. I've been expecting you. Although this seemed odd to Lacey, the woman had a pleasant smile, so she pushed her feelings of unease to the back of her mind and smiled back. The old woman gave him a hot meal and showed him to a warm, cozy room. The furniture was old and worn, but clean. When they awoke in the morning, they were eager to head home. There was no cell phone reception at the old house, and Lacey was sure Felicity's mom must be frantic with worry. They wanted to thank the proprietor, but she was nowhere to be found. They left a note on a table with some money for their stay and left. A few miles down the road, Aunt Lacey's phone beeped, indicating she had a message or call. She stopped at a little gas station to call Felicity's mom and tell her they were on their way and okay. Lacey decided to fill her tank and buy some drinks. While paying, she made conversation with the attendant, telling him about their enjoyable stay at Rest Haven. Looking surprised, the man told Lacey and Felicity that the home had burned down 20 years before, and the old woman who ran the place had lost her life in the fire. They couldn't believe what they'd been told, so they headed back to see. When they arrived at the place where they'd spent the night... All they saw was a singed sign and the shell of a house. Where the front hall had been, there was a dilapidated table, and on the table was the envelope containing their thank you note and money. The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert W. Service. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that'd make your blood run cold. The Northern Lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake LaBarge, I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say, in his homely way, that he'd sooner live in hell. 
On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold, through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and, Captain, says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of moan, It's the cursed cold and it's got right hold till I'm chilled clean through to the bone. You taint me dead. It's my awful dread of the icy grave, the pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed. So I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn. But God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death and I hurried, horror-driven. With a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promised true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were dumb, in my heart, how I cursed that load. In the long, long night, by the lone firelight, while the huskies, round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathe that thing. And every day, that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow. And on I went, though the dogs were spent, and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore... I would not give in, and I'd often sing to the hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake Labarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I, with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found was just lying around and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared and the furnace roared, such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. 
and the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked, then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, Please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plumtree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. And the Arctic trails have their secret tales that'd make your blood run cold. The Northern Lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake LaBarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Well, I'm out of marshmallows, so it's about time to turn in. That's Campfire Ghost Stories 7 in a gray-faced, shadowy, cremated nutshell. Before we turn in, let's throw one more log on the fire and in the night with some puds. Next time you throw a party, you'll want to visit the balloon shop that's always toasty warm inside. The Inflation of Sam McGee. You know, the old balloon shop. There used to be a nice store for bespoke waistcoats, but it burned down 20 years ago. However, sometimes when it storms, you can still get a nice waistcoat, somehow, at Vest Haven. There's a couple of quick ones for you. Hey, thanks for joining me around the fire for another round of Summertime Spooky Tales. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Blurry underscore photos. Like the Facebook page and follow on Instagram, both at Blurry Photos Podcast. And check out Patreon.com slash Blurry Photos to see some cool stuff you can get for supporting the show. All of it can be found at BlurryPhotos.org. Thank you guys for listening and liking the posts and commenting and all the support you show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. For this episode of Blurry Photos... I have been the thing with the gray face, David Flora. Till next time.